Welcome to Connected, episode 137. The show is made possible this week by our sponsors, Encapsula, Pingdom, and Eero. I'm your host, Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined this week by my friend and yours, Federico Vitici. Hey, Stephen. Hey, buddy. How's it going? It's good. It's just us this week. Yeah, uh, as you as you might have seen on Twitter, um, our friend Mike, he posted a picture of his shoelaces, which uh, broke recently. So because of that sign, that kind of omen, he decided to leave Connected uh, because it was a, an indication that it was time for a career change. So unfortunately, Mike won't join us this time or for the foreseeable future. Mike is gone. It's a real bummer. That made me sadder than the jokes about Mike being dead, honestly. <laughs> uh, Mike is coming back. Mike is coming back. Um, he's, uh, he's somewhere. On, I, I think he took a train to nowhere. I just saw that he was on a train. So maybe maybe we'll come back eventually. Maybe not. It depends on the efficiency of the train system in the UK, I guess. Yeah, he's at the Ool conference with a bunch of our friends. So if you're at Ool, go touch Mike's arm and tell him it's from us. <laughs> He'll know what yes, it means. Please do that. That got weird. Uh, okay, so we have some follow-up this week. Uh, we have excited, I'm excited about our show. We have a lot of good stuff coming, but first we have to do follow-up. And last week we spoke about the WWDC meetup. As predicted, it sold out very quickly. Uh, there is a waiting list. So if you are uh, coming to WWDC and want to come but miss the ticket window, sign up for the waiting list. You never know what could happen. Um and we had a listener write in. I can't find the tweet now, but uh, someone wrote in to ask us, the three of us, if we were going to WWC itself. So I can answer for Mike and I, at least, that we are not. Uh, I have never entered the lottery to go. WWC is a work trip for me. You know, we have a lot of shows to produce. We have our event. And I just don't feel like I could do what I need to do for Relay if I was attending the conference. And, you know, I do want to cover it, but they've done such a good job at getting videos out and they stream the state of the union and this stuff. Like it's really for me, there's not a huge, uh, a huge incentive for me to go when I can follow it better from the outside. And I don't need access to the labs or anything because I'm not a developer. Uh, so yeah, so Mike and I don't enter. Uh, I don't think we ever will. What about you, Federico? I like last year I entered the lottery and I got a ticket, so I'm going. Uh, for my annual IS review and especially the technical aspects, I need to be able to to attend the sessions and to talk to developers and to talk to engineers and and get the the all the in depth information that I need as quickly as possible. Because my work on the iOS 11 review will start the moment the keynote is over, and. Uh, for that reason, uh, we talked. We discussed this last year. Even if I'm not a developer by trade, uh, I need that kind of developer knowledge and access to people and engineers, and just being able to understand all the technicalities of iOS 11 or whatever it's gonna be called. So, yeah, I'm gonna be at the sessions. I'm gonna hang out by the labs, talking to developers, talking to engineers, trying to get as much as possible out of the event, taking my notes, uh, putting together all my mind maps, and getting to work as as soon as possible. Yeah, you'll be our main on the inside this year. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So we spoke last week uh, a lot about the Mac Pro. That news broke basically like an hour before we recorded last week. A couple pieces of follow-up there. I wrote a thing about the cheese grater Mac Pro, so the form factor that preceded the trash can Mac Pro, and kind of talked about its original design. It came from a G5 and the uh, expansion that it brought 
uh, to the table. And it really was a a fantastic layout and fantastic machine. But like the Mac Pro uh, now, it kind of got long in the tooth. They went a long time without dating, uh, without updating it. 2010 was like the last real actual update, and then 2012 was kind of just a, a spec bump. And it never got things like Thunderbolt or, or you know, it just... It kind of languished a little bit, and then they switched gears to use, you know, the cylinder design, which has, has failed since then. So I also put something together about what I would want in the new Mac Pro and some expansion and expandability that, you know, I'm, I'm a pro user of the Mac, and I bought an iMac, and I'm really happy with my iMac, but it would be nice, as I said last week, when it's time to replace this computer at some point in the future, I would like to have the option, at least, of a Mac Pro. And so I kind of, you know... If I could have a machine just the way I want it, what I would want in it. And uh, that blog post is written without any consideration to things like PCI lanes or, you know, like uh, it's just a, this is what I would like to see. And uh, there are obviously limitations and things Apple has to balance and work with. And I really think balance, like that's the, the word I keep coming back to and thinking about this machine, that the... The cheese grater had that, you know, it was big and heavy and it sat under your desk, but it had a lot of power and a lot of expandability. And the, the, the trash can got rid of almost all of it. You could, you could add RAM and that was really about it. You could add an SSD, but not at all as flexible as the one before it. And I think moving forward, Apple's got to find the balance, right? There are people who will want them, who do want them to just re-release the cheese grater, put Thunderbolt 3 on it, but let me put you know, four hard drives in it, let me do all this stuff. And I, I don't think that's the way to go. I think the machine's got to be modern in the sense that it's all SSD, that you're not, you know, leaving a spot for an optical drive to put in it. But it also has to have support for what pros are using. So so it, it still needs dual Ethernet. I think a mistake on the 2013 Mac Pro was they got rid of audio in. It was just two audio outs. And there are certain applications that it is nice to have audio into a computer that should come back. You know, you should have card slots, but I don't think you need room for, you know, rotating storage. Like, this has got to find that balance, right, of what pros are using today and what pros will use in the future. And I hope they get it right. I mean, it's clear they're taking their time. You know, I listened to uh, Exponent, Ben Thompson's podcast, and they were sort of joking that only Apple would take, you know, potentially a year, 18, 24 months to design a PC case, right? Like, uh, there's a very simple recipe, but Apple's going to do it with their own take. And I just hope they make those trade-offs the right way this time. So when people ask about wanting a new Mac Pro, are they, so they're talking about, they want a box where there's SSD, there's a bunch of ports, like Ethernet, like audio, like Thunderbolt, maybe USB, C or whatever. And then they want to be able to change the GPU inside uh, with the, I guess, with the PCI Express configuration. So that's what they want, a box where there's a bunch of SSD, there's a bunch of ports on the outside. And then when the time comes, you can put in the GPU that you want. Is that even possible? Yeah, I think it is. And and my argument was Apple's, Apple's GPU that you just get from the store should be really good. Like it's mm. time to quit, you know, putting the wimpy GPUs and Macs. Like put a nice one in there, but have a slot available if I want to add a second one or yeah. if I need like something like a video capture card or audio card. Um, there are other uses for PCI besides just GPUs. And Apple's bet with the 2013 Mac Pro was going to be put all that in a chassis outside. Well, that was never going to work unless Apple... Bu- 
I really think Apple should have built a chassis. If they were really serious about that, they should have come out with a PCI breakout box that looked good, worked well, and was fully supported. But that never really took off. And there are people, I know people in like audio production in particular, who have stuck with the cheese grater because they have audio capture cards or they have cards with plugins or something on them that they need uh, brought into the Mac. And, you know, maybe that is old fashioned, but when you're talking about the pro market, you have to deal with legacy hardware to a degree. Like if there's any machine that they should keep USB-A on, it's this machine, at least for a little while. Now, by the time this thing ships in 2023 or, you know, whenever they finally get it done, that may sound silly, but their pro users hold onto hardware, external hardware, components of their setup for a long time. This machine is be able to support that. And PCI is definitely a way to do that. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. I know you're super interested in buying a new Mac. Yeah, for sure. And I'm getting the new Mac Pro when it, when it comes out, you know? Uh, I oh, yeah. promise you in a, in a couple of years, I'm, I'm getting the new Mac Pro. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, can, you can bet on it, actually. Uh, we'll follow up uh, in a couple of years' time yeah. with my new Mac Pro. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so your favorite ride-sharing service is in the news again. Why are we even talking about this? Because we talked about it once, and now it's in the, the follow-up uh, category. Okay, so tell me what, what is happening here. Uh, so, uh, I can't even do it. So, uh, what? <laughs> what's hmm. the name of the startup, Stephen? Blah, blah, car. <laughs> blah, 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 car. <laughs> what, have, what have they done this time? Do they have a new mascot? Do they have they, a new No, commercial? the creepy purple guy is still the mascot. So, we oh. should tell people, how did you first come across this company? Like, there's got to okay. be a little background here. It was two years ago, and I was on summer vacation in southern Italy. And I drove there with my girlfriend. It was a seven-hour car trip. And uh, one of my friends who also participated on this trip, we were a bunch of of friends, he didn't actually use his own car. And he didn't get there by train either. He used, he told me, blah, blah, car, which is this ride-sharing service where you go to this website and you say, I need to go there. And you find... A driver, so a person, a common person, who's driving there anyway and has signed up for the service to say, if there's other people who need to go to the same place where I'm going at this date, at this time, they can come with me. They pay a small fee and we share the ride together. And it's a way to, they call it a ride sharing, pool sharing, whatever. I don't know what the proper terminology is. But it's a way for people to save on, you know, instead of taking a bunch of cars, you hop into a stranger's car, uh, <laughs> thanks to the blah blah car service. <laughs> and in theory, and this friend, he he was really happy about the service, and he told me he met some wonderful people uh, of all kinds of people using blah blah car. And when I came back two years ago, so we're talking 2015, I came back on the show and I told you guys about this amazing service that I discovered. The problem was, after a few months, we came across a commercial of BlaBlaCar on the Italian television and I took a bunch of photos. And the problem with this commercial was they used a creepy, ugly, bl- purple blob figure with human eyes and a human mouth that was super unsettling and super creepy. And since I took that photo, Steven has saved the photo in his favorites 
And when iMessage came out last year, and when iMessage stickers, he used the custom iMessage sticker app to turn the purple guy into a sticker. So now whenever we're talking about something funny on iMessage, he sticks the purple guy from the Blah Blah Car <laughs> commercial onto messages, which is super creepy because he has these big eyes and the gape, the, the, the mouth with the red lips. There'll be a photo of him in the Please show don't. notes. If you go to the show notes page, I'll embed it there. Please don't. It's... it's, it's it, 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 I don't know. Yes, there's a. I'm looking at uh, in the in the chat room. There's also another photo uh, of the same uh, monster uh, with this green companion. Uh, the 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 blue guy uses an iPhone and the green friend uses a Mac to uh, reserve a spot in a blah blah car. So anyway, um, they're raising money. <laughs> there's an article on TechCrunch. They are face. They they faced some growing pains as a European startup. They're raising money, they want to expand in Russia, and uh, they see an opportunity there to expand the market. Um, again, I'm not even sure what we're talking about this. I guess it's just become sort of a meme of Connected to, to keep, a, I think keep so. up to date on also, Blubacar News. I have a saved Google News search for it. Really? That's why. Really? I do. Well, I, I, don't <laughs> even, I, don't even know, I don't even know what to say. So if you're using BlaBlaCar, my friends still use it, by the way. And um, I'm never, ever going to use BlaBlaCar. I don't want to get into a stranger, stranger's vehicle. Um, and I'm never going to have strangers in my own car. So I don't want to be a user on BlaBlaCar, and I don't want to be the one who rents the car for other people. So other people like it. So, you know. Phew. Yeah. They're raising money. They're betting the company on the Russian market. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so, yeah. So I should that. probably drive my car to Russia and see what happens with blah blah car. I think you should. Uh, so uh, we're going to get into some topics, but first I want to thank our first sponsor, and that is Encapsula. Encapsula is a multifunction content delivery network that boosts the performance of your website, protects it from denial of service attacks, and secures it from bad guys while ensuring high availability. Websites of all sizes can be attacked. It really happens every day. Criminals use these giant botnets to scrape website content. They break into databases, bring sites down, again with these denial of service attacks. Encapsula's network holds 3 terabits per second of on-demand scrubbing capacity and can process 30 billion attacks per second. Those numbers are just crazy to me. This is why their network has successfully defended some of the largest website attacks on record. You can see these attacks as they happen on the Encapsula dashboard, and they help you adjust your security policies on the fly. And if you are attacked, Encapsula's powerful CDN means that your content is delivered to your customers quickly anyways. You don't want people bailing on your site waiting for it to load, and with Encapsula, they would have no idea that something bad is happening. As a listener of this show, you can get one whole month of service for free, all you need to do is go to encapsula.com slash connected. That's I-N-C-A-P-S-U-L-A dot com slash connected. This is where you can find out more about Encapsula's service and also claim your free month. Thank you so much to Encapsula for their support of this show and Relay FM. So we got some news uh, last week that Walt Mossberg uh, is planning to retire in June. Yeah, this is uh, big news, especially if you follow... Uh, the tech news scene and in general, you know, Mossberg has been a journalist and a reporter for almost 50 years, I think 47 years. That's such an incredible career and 
Uh, I've been reading some uh, articles on the impact of Mossberg's writing. Uh, there's an excellent one also from Ben Thompson that he posted yesterday on uh, on his blog. And, you know, just go read those stories because I think, you know, it cannot be understated the kind of uh, impact that Mossberg's career had on our industry and just, you know, the sort of brand. Uh, that he built, and and I think Thompson did an excellent job in describing the how he he was able to to transition at a defining moment of the PC industry when personal computer computers were starting to become truly for everyone. Mossberg was was able to build a brand of you know based on explaining technology for normal people, and he didn't you know he. he is the man who were was you know when a new Apple product came out, Steve Jobs would call up Mossberg and give him a preview. Uh, that's just the kind of journalist and reporter that he was that that he is, and now it's gonna uh, stop uh, writing for uh, you know his current gig. Uh, we don't know what it is gonna do. He says he's gonna do more writing. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, to see a, an indie Mossberg someday. I think that would be awesome, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of hoping for a book, honestly, of like his. That too, yeah, yeah, that would be great. His time, because I mean, his, uh, and Ben goes into this. Uh, there's a thing on the Verge about it as well, obviously. But uh, Mossberg, his career started at the perfect time. You know, he was he was covering the government and like the intelligence committee, you know, intelligence agencies of the U.S. government, and became the voice of the consumer right as the sort of personal technology revolution was taking off and the timing was perfect and so he kind of did two things he he paved his own way right he created his own career but he also set up a template for other people to do it and there are so many people now in this field including the two of us who cover technology as a subject you know like someone would cover the government or other industries in the past. And his legacy is really incredible. And I would definitely encourage you to go check out the links in the show notes. There's a, uh, uh, the New Yorker did a profile on him in 2007 and it's basically Mossberg holding court. All these companies come to him and they want his, in, you know, his input. And he's, he's very clear with them saying, Hey, I'm not a consultant, uh, but I can, I can tell you what I think. And the New York article goes into, to, you know, Mossberg's power in this space, being able to make or break a brand and make or break a product because he is so well-respected and and so widely read, both at, you know, the Wall Street Journal and then on his own and now as part of The Verge. So it's really an incredible run. Yeah. And I think we should all learn a lot from how Mossberg was able to understand uh, a new wave coming and he wrote that wave, and in the process, he created something new completely. And I think it just from a business perspective, it's just, it's just so fascinating to go back and observe and learn. And I truly hope we'll get something from Mossberg in the future, whether it's a book or a new indie website. Uh, I just hope the guy doesn't stop writing, you know, uh, because he's been around a long time and he knows what he's doing. And I think we should, we, we can all learn from someone with that kind of expertise and knowledge. So last week, uh, we also saw the launch of Clips, Apple's, I don't know how you would describe this. Uh, uh, show, so, social video making app, maybe? Perfect. I don't know. It's not social per se, but it's kind of. It's social. a tool though. It's, it's, I mean, like we discussed, it is, uh, it's not a social network itself. I think Apple 
has learned its lesson there, but it is a uh, a tool for basically for you to create something to push out to a social network. It when did it launch? Thursday last week, Friday. Yeah, some, yeah, I think time. it was Thursday. Yeah. And so we had some time with it, mm. and there's a lot of interesting stuff in this app. I will say, like high level, I think it's pretty well laid out. There were a couple places that uh, the UI could use some some polishing or some clarification. Like when I first used it. I accidentally like downloaded my raw clip instead of saving the edited version because like some of that was a little confusing. But you know, once you figure it out, you figure it out. And it looks nice. It has um, one thing I really wasn't expecting is that all the sound effects or, or like the music you can put under them are download on demand. So you, yeah. So I I think I it's the what... same with the with the memories feature in iOS 10. Yeah. You can download the, the, that kind of pre pre made music on demand. Right, uh, but it's not, not it's not bundled in the app, which may, which is nice. It keeps it small, yeah. Um, but you just got to kind of wait for that to come in. But um, there's some weirdness too. Like it is a universal app. I really thought it was iPhone only. I was I didn't even try it on my iPad. Apparently, it's really bad on the iPad, right? Like, have you tried it on the 12.9? Yes, I did, and it's it's got a bunch of low res assets, and I'm uh-huh. pretty sure the onboarding experience was in portrait mode only. There's a bunch of weird things that made me wonder, as I was trying the app, why is this even on the iPad? And I guess the answer is because Apple sees these people taking videos with the iPad. And to be fair, um, when, when I, for example, I turned on the news yesterday and there was a, a journalist, a reporter, uh, uh, I think somewhere in Rome doing a, doing a news piece. And there was someone in the background uh, with a camera crew, crew. And instead of a camera, they had an iPad mounted on a sort of tripod. That's crazy. Uh, just shooting video. And so, yeah, there are people using the iPad for this stuff. And I guess Apple hopes that, well, you're taking video with your iPad. Now you can you can make it uh, lit, uh, as, they, as the people say these days, mm-hmm. and share it on, on Instagram and whatever. Uh, so we're coming to you where you your video happens. Uh, we have the Clips app uh, to help you. I guess that's the, the reasoning. But it just, the app is so badly done on the iPad. It's, you know, it's... Kind of like like an afterthought, really. Yeah, I kind of, I mean, I, I get that, but if it's going to be like half baked, like why not just have it iPhone only at first? Like that would have been fine, right? Like, I don't think anyone would have really bad an eye if it was iPhone only, but who knows? Um, there is some weirdness though, right? That it uses yeah. uh, your camera, microphone, and can save yeah. photos without asking permission. It doesn't bring up the standard permission dialogue to access the camera, the microphone, or save photos into a library. And the the idea here, I guess, it's well, it's an Apple app. They can do whatever they want. But I think it's bad form, especially when it's an app you download from the App Store. Uh, I think it's necessary to implement the same steps that other apps have to use. And also, I mean, this is kind of obvious and maybe not as bad as not asking for permission. But of course, there's a bunch of private APIs being used. Uh, one example is uh, being able to display the recently used emoji outside of the keyboard context. So in the Clips app, there's a, a pop-up screen where you get a grid of emoji you've used recently on your iOS device. Mm-hmm. And developers cannot access that kind of information about the emoji keyboard. Uh, of course, Clips can because it's an Apple app. Uh, but really, I, I, I just hope that, that that Apple can implement the permissions dialogue, especially in this day and age, you know. It, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't look right to me with an app that you download from the app store and then you can do whatever you want. Right. Um, but talking about the app itself, I think it's 
some parts of it are really nice. Uh, I like the, the visual effects. I think they're nicely done. Uh, I think the dictation idea to be able to create uh, closed captioning as you record a video is kind of cool. It's a very nice implementation. But I don't know how much I'm going to use this. Uh, it just seems to me like it seems better to use the native features of social networks. And, and I'm especially referring to the stories feature on Instagram, which a lot of my friends are using these days. And it just seems so much more natural to, you know, to shoot a video in there and to add some text and to add some colors and emoji directly from Instagram instead of having to go through the extra step of, well, I want to use Apple's Clips app and then I need to add some effects and text, then I need to save it and then I need to import it back into Instagram or whatever. So, I mean, it looks kind of cool and... It's nice, but it smells to me like the annual Apple experiment that they handle to an intern and that unlike, you know, music memos or cards or whatever Apple did before with these experiments, this time it gained so much more exposure uh, because it's, uh, you know, it kind of wanted to fit into this, uh, the, the, so, the modern social narrative of everybody's doing this video making apps with effects these days. But it does seem to me like it's another Apple experiment. Uh, and I don't want to say that it's going nowhere, but it doesn't have... I, I don't think it will have the impact that some people think it will, you know? I don't see a lot of clips videos in my Instagram feeds or in my Facebook or not even my iMessage, really. I think it's kind of cool. I, I think it, made, it would have made more sense as an iMovie extension or something. Uh, I don't think it'll take off as a, you know, as a default way for people to share video uh, socially. Yeah, I, I totally agree that I think people, and, and iOS has trained us to be this way, right? That if you want to do something with an app, you go to the app first, right? That's the whole model. And, mm-hmm. you know, I created some stuff in there really just on launch day, really just to send to, you know, friends over iMessage. And I, I was kind of expecting, you know, maybe just because I follow a bunch of Apple people, I kind of was expecting to see a lot of this stuff show up on like my Instagram feed or in Twitter. And it mm-hmm. just hasn't. And I think it's because people are going to those to those services, to those apps to create content for those apps. Like Instagram, you know, you can bring in photos you've taken in the last 24 hours. I don't even know how many people know about that. And it crops them, you know on its own like you can't control it or anything and and clips is making square videos which is nice for instagram but not stories like these these different services just want different things and i don't think clips can be molded in a way to fit you know every receiving end of it so i agree with you like it's it's fun uh the closed captioning to me is that my favorite part you can edit you can go in and tap and edit it if it gets it wrong but it's it's fun but you know, I've stuck it in a folder, and I'm sure I'll play yeah. with it some on occasion, but it's not going to change the world. And I think that's okay. Like, I think these, these like, in Google parlance, like, 10% time projects. Yes. Uh, like, they're fun, right? Like, music memos, if you use it, like, and, and and it's part of your workflow, that's great. And I'm sure there's people who use it or are glad it exists. But I don't think Clips has to change the world, right? Like, there's a lot of... A lot of uh, hot takes when it was announced that this is Apple's first like move yeah. into AR and like that very well may be true. And I think it probably is, but that doesn't mean that this has to, to like go out and, and, and completely change the way everyone interacts with their social networks for it to be a success. 
yeah, I guess we don't have to always look for a deeper meaning, you know? Sometimes yeah. things are just what they are. It's it's a new app and it does a bunch of nice things and it might as well be a way for Apple to collect data or whatever or maybe it's just an experiment. Maybe they just assembled a team of 10 people and said, well, we want a way to make it easier for people to make videos. So take a bunch of tech from iMovie, take a bunch of tech from the camera app and ship something. And maybe we don't have to look for you know, a profound subtext. Maybe it's just what it is. It's nice, it'll get a few updates, and then who knows? Yeah, I think that's all you can ask of it. And, you know, I haven't played with iMovie on iOS. I don't know, I don't know in how long. I don't have it installed anywhere. Um, and so I am curious, you know, how it compares to iMovie. My guess is that it's much more streamlined. And I think Clips is really designed, like, you pull your phone out, you shoot something, you spend a couple minutes putting it together, and then you share it. And iMovie feels like there's more work involved. I don't know, like I said, if that's true or not, but my impression is that videos was sort of designed. You have this like very narrow path you go down, like you shoot, you add some effects and you share. And iMovie is more kind of free form. You kind of do what you want and then you get video out the other end. I do think there is room for Apple to do more stuff like this though. These little like 10%, you know, Apple experiments of seeing a, a, a need in the market that no one's really addressing and and doing something about it. And, and something like this, or like Music Memos, like they're such Apple-y apps, right? Like these are the apps Apple should be making that, that make content creation easy. That's that's the bread and butter of the iLife suite on the Mac, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Hmm. It's, it's, they, it, they tried it with iLife early on in the iPad uh, cycle. And I think what they discovered is people don't want to sit down at iMovie or GarageBand on their iOS devices like they used to do on their Mac. The, it, like iOS apps are better when they're more narrow. And if you approach it that way, there's lots of things Apple could do. And I think they should be doing it. If, if anything, just to set an example of, you know, what can be done, right? Like the, that, uh, the closed captioning thing, you know, that's something that Apple could do because they have access to all of that. And like, use that to your advantage to make something fun. And again, it doesn't have to be a chart topping app. It doesn't have to, you know, have, you know, 200 million downloads, you don't have to include it in iOS 11, you know, on the springboard by default. But if for people who want it and who who find it, it should be, it should be fun to use and it should be easy to use. And good Apple software is like at that intersection to use a, a term that Mike hates of like fun and easy to use. And I think Clips gets that right. Yeah, I agree. We'll so, see. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. I'm, I'm very curious to see how it, uh, how it, last long term. I don't keep music memos on any of my devices. It's not a need that I have. I don't mm. know how often it's been updated or, you know, if it's getting features. You know, I guess yeah. this stuff like this gets put in maintenance mode pretty quickly. Um although I would clips, be I would be surprised if we don't see any new effects in the camera app in the future. You know, they just make more sense there. Honestly I wouldn't mind some of that stuff getting pulled out of the camera app. There's a lot oh, of really? stuff in there. There's a lot of stuff in the camera app and, you know, put it, put it someplace like clips, but mm, yeah, so we'll I see. don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> I think we'll get more, not less. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Uh, okay. So uh, our second sponsor this week is Pingdom. Start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com slash connected. You'll get a 14 day free trial. And when you enter the offer code connected at checkout, you'll get 20% off your first purchase. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for anyone who has a website. 
They do this by offering powerful and easy-to-use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, you can monitor the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, and it's just a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers. These test servers, they emulate visitors to your site, checking its availability as often as once per minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and often include several dependencies. Things like contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and loads more. Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all these key interactions people will have with your site. It's not just about a simple static site anymore. These things are complicated. Let's be real. Stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Each month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 a day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a giant infrastructure, it's super important to, to monitor its availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is the URL you wish to monitor, and they take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix the error before the downtime affects you. It's just the worst when you find out that your website's down by someone on Twitter or someone emailing you. You need Pingdom so you're ahead of the curve. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your website is down. So go to pingdom.com connected for a 14-day free trial, and use the offer code connected at checkout to get 20% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and Relay FM. So Stephen, I thought for a change, I want to ask you, not about iOS, not about the iPad, but I want to ask you, why do you love the Mac so much? Because I, I, I feel like you are like a good parent. You let me and Mike <laughs> talk about our favorite toys, but you rarely share your for those old computers and why do you actually love macOS? So this time, I'll let you go over why is the Mac so important to you? Why do you love it so much? And what are the reasons that you still need a Mac today? And, uh, you know, how does that relate to switching to iOS and using the iPad? Well, I appreciate the opportunity to <laughs> indulge in this. Uh, <laughs> it's very kind of you, my son. So my, my origin story, I've told before, I wrote it up back in 2011. As a side note to all of this, I share this with you over iMessage the other night. When I was writing the cheese grater thing, most of the sources I used, I had linked to or written about mm. before because my site is almost yeah. nine years old. And like, it's getting to a point where if I need something in the past, I've written yeah. about it already. Yeah. It's very strange. I get the feeling too. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So I wrote a piece back in 2011. It'll be in the show notes. It's called Sophomore. And and basically it was about my introduction to the Mac. And I've shared this before. If, so if you've heard it, forgive me. But uh, I was in high school. I joined the newspaper program. It was a big deal at my high school. It had won tons of awards for design and student journalism. As a freshman, I applied to work on the staff. She let, uh, the, the advisor let me join as a sophomore, which was very unusual. And my first job was within the advertising department. I designed ads. And so I was using like Photoshop and Quark Express and Mac OS 9 on this old Power Mac G3 all-in-one. It's called the Molar Mac. I actually just bought one. I've looked for one for years. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to my unboxing video. It is the ugliest computer Apple has ever made by far, but it means a lot to me because it was the it was the first Mac that I ever really used. And, you know, I had come across them before in school labs and that sort of thing, but it really... 
it was the first Mac that I made something on. And and that may sound silly, but the I think I think the Mac and, and, and iOS and like computers are really just they're just tools, right? They are just ways to to make things. They're just fancy screwdrivers. I really believe that. At the end of the day, a computer is just a tool to to do or to make or to create. And that really resonated with me, you know, I guess however old you are as a sophomore in high school, like 15 or 16 years old. And that lesson really sunk in that this with this computer, I can make a thought real, right? That that uh, a design in my head or a photo that I had taken or something I was writing, I could put out into the world. Because it was a newspaper, I could publish it and, and hundreds of people could read it. And my high school had about 2,000 people in it, so, you know, hundreds of people were reading it. Um shockingly small number compared to our audience today, but it's a different story. But I got hooked. I got hooked to publishing. I got hooked to sharing my thoughts with the world uh, through things like design and writing and photography, all all the same things I do today. Really, I owe almost everything in my career to that high school newspaper room. And and the skills I learned there on that computer are the skills that I use today. Yes, I'm not using Quark Express anymore, but you know, I'm not using Photoshop six anymore. I'm not using Mac OS nine anymore. But but those are you sure? Those fun, uh, well, some days I use <laughs> Mac OS nine, but those fundamentals I learned there have shaped my career. You know, in the 16 years since, I just fell in love with the Mac, and I fell in love with its personality. That the Mac has a feeling about it that I just don't that doesn't resonate the same way from an iOS device. You know, yes, that that has faded over time. You know, OS ten is is has less personality than it once did. And far less personality than the classic Mac OS. But there's something about this, these machines that just have a spark to them that I really resonate with. And I'm not alone in that. And I think I probably sound like somebody older than me. You know, I probably sound like Guy English, who's, who's you know, a little bit older than me, but got into like you know, those guys, like, got into like the Apple II, right? Like, and, you know, John Sokusa got into the original Mac. Like, for me, it was a Molar Mac, which is really unfortunate compared to the Apple II and the original <laughs> Mac. <laughs> but kind of the same thing, right? That I could just, I just connected with it somehow. I've used one ever since. And I got a titanium power book at a high school job. And they basically let me carry it as my own machine. And then I got a blue and white G3 tower, which I still own the exact computer. I had it in college. I own the exact computer today. It's sitting just on the other side of this room. And, you know, a whole line of power books, MacBook Pros, and now this iMac. And throughout them all, the Mac has been my consistent platform for work, I've never, you know, even when I was doing IT for a living, you know, I had a PC notebook, but I also had a MacBook Pro and my HP would just sit on my desk and I would take my MacBook Pro and remote into it when I needed something in Windows. Uh, I was very kind of unconventional IT guy sometimes, but it's always been there. It's always been, been where I sit down to do work and where I sit down to, uh, to write, you know, things for myself and things, I work on my photography and the videos, like all this stuff centers around the Macintosh. And I guess there are a bunch of reasons for that beyond just the nostalgia of being 15 and meeting this computer for the first time, right? Like that is a factor. And, and if you pay attention to my work at all, as a huge factor in my work and I'm just, I'm a nostalgic person. And I, but my, my love for the Mac is not solely based in that. That is a factor for sure. I'm mean, going to have a dog cow tattoo for crying out loud. Like that is a factor. But today, like, you know, I'm doing a podcast with you. Then this afternoon, I'm going to do some writing and I will choose. Do I do it at my iMac or do it at my iPad? And 
in that decision making for for tasks that I can do either place, I will still generally pick the Mac because of things like like familiarity. You know that that is familiar. That it is. I have all these keyboard shortcuts wired into my nerves and my hands, and I have things like Text Expander and Hazel and all these things working all the time that make the way that I work faster on the Mac than it is on iOS. For me, it is not for a lot of my work. I can do it both places. Right. And I, and at the end of the day, the work, you know, it, it would rather be an article, these show notes this week, you know, my part of them, like this section that I'm going through, I wrote out on my iPad uh, the other morning with my smart keyboard. Like I can do that work, but, and the consistency is there, but generally it's faster on the Mac. And, and some of that has to do with limitations in iOS. So things like you know, the speed of windowing, you know, again, keyboard shortcuts, like when I'm writing. So if you think about like a typical article I write for either 512 pixels or, or Mac stories, even now, um, about Apple history, like take a model of a computer or take, take an idea, take a concept and flesh it out. When I'm writing that sort of piece, I've got a hundred Chrome tabs open. I've got a bunch of different apps open. I've got some YouTube video playing in the background. I have Mac Tracker. I have, you know, my text editor. And again, I can do 100% of that on the iPad, but the Mac makes it easier to see all that stuff at once and flip around uh, more quickly. And I, I, like you, Federico, I strongly believe that multitasking is going to get phenomenally better on the iPad, hopefully this year. And I hope that Apple has some way, at least on the 12.9-inch iPad, to see more at once. Because, you know, in writing, I'll have two windows up and kind of looking, referencing one while I work on the other. And I can do that on the iPad, but I always feel like I'm managing split screen apps like all the time. And, and that just gets, um, for me, again, just the way that I work, you know, I, I should have prefaced this at the top. So I'm going to say it now. This, like my opinion and your opinion, even though we disagree on some of this stuff, like neither of us feel like this is not a holy war. Like, right. Like I am not. I fully understand that the Mac plays second fiddle to iOS and you know what? That's fine. Like Apple is the, the iPhone company, the iPad and the Mac, you know, are kind of on equal footing, give or take. And at least in revenue. And that's fine. Like I am not one to cling to the past of saying, you know, Apple should be the Mac company and get rid of iOS. I'm not saying that, nor am I saying that I, as a Mac user, feel threatened that the iPad is going to take over. I don't feel threatened by that for a couple of reasons. One, Apple said that's not the case, that they're going to evolve the iPad in parallel with the Mac. You know what? If they do that, then I can step over to the iPad and it'll be fine. Like, you know, if they do that at some point. But today, at least, I think for the foreseeable future, the Mac is still an important part of Apple's strategy. And there are parts of my job that I can only do on a Mac. And as long as that's the case, the Mac will exist. And so I'm not one to freak out about that. Let me ask you. Sure. Is there something from iOS that you wish was available on the Mac? Uh, yeah, there's tons of stuff. I think the biggest thing, and it's sort of like, it's more of a concept than an actual feature. I think iOS has done a great job of hiding the complexities under the hood. So let's just take a simple example of uninstalling an application, right? So you try Clips, you don't like it. You hold down the icon and you tap the X and it's gone and yeah. all of it's gone. And on the Mac, because like Mac OS slash Mac OS 10 is really like, it's this weird, if you should go read my book about this, uh, a weird marriage of classic <laughs> Mac OS and next step. 
And so like when I delete an application from my applications folder, it leaves ton of tons of junk scattered across my disk, right? Like resource yeah. files and like yeah. themes and font. Like there's there's a lot Apple could do to make the behind the scenes stuff for the Mac OS cleaner where you don't that complexity could still be there, but do a better job of managing it for me. And like I like that I can dig into my preferences folder and like just the other day, I had a problem in uh, Airmail, and I went in and like got rid of its entire preferences folder and let it resync from iCloud. There's not really a way to do that on the on iOS, right? So there yeah. there's pros and cons to both, but I think a, as a general principle, Apple could do more on the Mac to to hide that sort of stuff from people who don't want to see it, right? Yeah, for for everyday usage, you, it's not like you're always needing to go look into the, the preferences right. folder or the cache or, you know, the the library settings. Right. So a good example of this, I don't know what release it was. Uh, let's say, I don't know, let's say Lion, because Lion changed a bunch of stuff. I don't know if that's true or not. They hid the user library folder. Yeah, so, I remember. <laughs> and you, you had to do it with a keyboard shortcut or you could go into uh, the Go, you know, the Go box and, and get it there. Yes. And you know what? I was fine with that decision. It was a little perturbing at first, but when you realize that most people can only do harm in there yeah, and it's still there. Like I can still get to it. You know, I can hit, um, you know, command shift G uh, to go to folder and, you know, start typing and it'll get me there. So I think, I think things like that, that make the Mac less scary for people because, you know, I think a lot of people are afraid of the Mac because they think they're going to break something. And these are the same people that like install and install apps on their iPad all day. Like, I think there's that sort of middle ground. Now, Apple has also gotten that wrong over the years. I think you look at something like app sandboxing, where they're trying right. to force a model on the Mac that doesn't really work on the Mac. And there's room for sandboxing. I think they needed to approach it differently. I think they are slowly realizing that what they did there was that their outcome was good. Like what they wanted to do was good, but they went about it in the wrong way. And so I think there's there's give and take there. But I think overall, the Mac could be less scary for some users. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And especially when it comes to balancing the same computer or even the same app for two kinds of users. There's the novice and there's the expert. And I feel like the optimal rule would be by default, hide the complexity, but don't lock it down for the expert user. Just make it accessible via a setting or a hidden preference. Because if you're an expert user, you're going to know how to handle that kind of you know, tweaking and customization. But if you're a novice, you don't want to be intimidated by the program or by the computer. Sure. So I agree with you. I think by default, there should be you know, you should hide the complexity, but you shouldn't lock it down, which is exactly what Apple tried to do with Sandboxing and the Mac App Store. They try to lock down the advanced features of apps for expert users, whereas I think it's okay to have more security and a, and a safer sandboxing system for everyone, but don't remove the advanced functionality for power users. Right. And that's a very that's a very fine line to walk. And, and Apple has sort of uh, taken a bunch of missteps in the past few years, and maybe they're trying to get it right, you know, in the more recent years. We'll see. I think, too, and in, in, in talking about things that one platform can learn from the other, I think one reason... Mac OS has such a a broad user base is that the hardware is broad. If you want something really thin and light, you can get a MacBook and it's basically an iPad running Mac OS. Like it's very small, it's very light and it's like the ultimate portable machine. But if you're someone like me where I'm doing, you know, audio and video editing and processing, 
uh, I'm writing, I'm doing all these, these power user type tasks. The 27 inch iMac runs the same OS, but gives me much more capability in what I can do with it and gives me more flexibility in what I can get done. And I think there's room for iOS, especially the iPad to scale that you know, it's great that we have the nine, seven and the 12, nine, but like, what does a, an even bigger iPad look like? What does it look like to have an iOS device that is on your desk, like a desktop iOS device. You know, we have that with mm. the iMac, right? Like, unless you're that guy on Reddit that pops up every couple of years, you're not taking your iMac to a coffee shop. You, know, <laughs> you have a MacBook or a MacBook Pro. And and even like me, like I have an iMac and a MacBook Pro because I, I want a desktop. I want all my drives, I want all my, my stuff on my desk. I want to be here when I walk in the door to my studio. But I have a MacBook Pro because I work on the road and I need to travel and I need to do these other things. And I can have my same tools, my same data, my same, uh, you know, my same utility belt with me on two different machines with very different form factors. And I think iOS, there, there's, it's not the the lowest hanging fruit on the iOS tree. Like they, they should fix some other stuff first. Yeah. But at yeah, some point, sure. at some point, I think they've got to look at what does it mean to have iOS on a desktop. What does it mean to have an iPad you don't take with you. And that is really fascinating. You know, I actually wouldn't mind an iPad the size of my desk, where it's like my desk is the iPad. And I can, you know, and it's this sort of strange mix of Mac OS and iOS. I can use multi-touch and there's the keyboard that follows me on screen and I can take a look at multiple apps. I can pinch and swipe. I can scroll. I can make my photos bigger. I can watch 4K, maybe even 8K video on my desk, uh, but it also retains the simplicity and the secure model of iOS. It just, it, you're not creating new complexity. You're trying to get a, you're trying to build a new system to 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 sort of fix the complexity of a, of a legacy model in new ways. And I think that's the challenge going forward. Like five, 10, 15 years from now, do you really think that uh, we're always going to be stuck with laptops and big screens that sit vertically and you have a keyboard or do you think there's sort of maybe there will be some convergence uh you know in the short term it, it is okay to you know to say uh, well i don't want to have a macbook with touch uh but you know until a couple of years ago you would have said well i don't want to have an ipad with with split view or with external keyboards uh, and that was me to an extent that was actually me so i think over time you know everything becomes more uh, malleable maybe everything becomes more flexible and I, I don't think it's too crazy to imagine a future where you get home and there's a giant iPad on your table or on your desk and you have these sets of Apple pencils. Maybe you have something like a Surface dial. Maybe you don't. Maybe there's a new accessory. Or maybe you even put in your phone, your iPhone, on top of the giant iPad and it does a bunch of continuity stuff uh, because you're putting your phone on top of it. I don't know, man. The future is crazy. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, but I don't think... from In the past few years, I try not to keep a, a fixed perspective because I think anything is possible. And I think one of the the traps that people get caught into when it comes to Apple coverage is to say, well, Apple is never going to do this and that. And I think it's a, what makes Apple Apple is doing stuff that drives people crazy and surprising people with, in, in theory, crazy decisions. So, you know, maybe in, <laughs> down the road, I, I do believe a giant iPad and, you know, MacBooks that look different or iMacs for pros. I think everything is possible. 
I think so too. And, and I think, I think the last thing for me that sort of s- still makes the Mac my home base is that there are on the Mac there were a bunch of different paths to get something done, and you have a lot of flexibility in the workflows that you build. And so if you, I mean, so so if you take something like editing a podcast, right? What I do do it several times a week. I have a bunch of different ways I could go about that. I have a bunch of different ways I can record it, have a bunch of different ways I can save and, and export that file, have a bunch of different apps I can use for pre-flight editing and editing and sound cancellation. And I can use a tool until I outgrow it, like something like GarageBand, then I can graduate to Logic. And, or if I am already using one Adobe program, I can download its sibling program and do it in there, and they're similar. And I can do post-processing different ways. I can put chapters in different ways. I can upload it via FTP or via the web. Like, And the iOS, again, it's getting there, but I, I still often feel restricted in uh, and into a narrow path on iOS. Like we talked about earlier with Clips, narrow path apps, I think, are the way to go on iOS, at least to a degree. But when it comes down to like getting actual work, like the t- type of, again, the type of work that I do, I only, can only speak for me, the flexibility that Matt gives me is something that I that I still cherish, that I can I can do things different ways, that I have a finder and I can manipulate files and folders with a bunch of different utilities there. I can do stuff in the command line. I can go to the GUI. I can have something running in my menu bar that's always tickling files on my disk as I as they download from Dropbox. Like all this different types of stuff means that I can I can build an environment around myself that works for me when I'm not active. Right. So this stuff, I have all these different ways to do things, and a bunch of those ways can work in the background. And again, iOS is getting there with things like web services and 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 pulling things into workflow or you know pulling things into into Dropbox in the background. But the Mac is still so multi-processed by default that that stuff can be going on just all the time. And it means that when I go to reach for something, I know that it's there because I trust this process in the background has done it for me. And it, for me, at least the way that I work, I tend to jump around a bunch. Again, if I'm writing, I have all this stuff going on. It means that I'm not switching to an app or switching modes and waiting for a process to finish or waiting for an app to wake up to do something, to download something in the background. That that sort of like always on approach of the Mac means that the computer can do more work for me when I'm not around. So like my iMac out here in my studio, I leave on 24 seven and, you know, I set the screen to go to sleep, but, uh, the CPU, the drive, everything is always on because, you know, it, it can sync changes from Dropbox. So they end up in time machine. I've got iCloud photo library going. So I can pull down photos. I have things like Backblaze and, and Google photos uploader. Like this stuff can just be working for me all the time. And, you know, maybe that's part of this idea of like a stay at home iOS device that can do more of this stuff. But right now, iOS still feels very much on demand that I'm, I want to do this, I'm going to do this, and the device will respond to me. And I like that the Mac is uh, sort of out ahead of me on some of these things and, and uh, preparing things for me. So when I sit down for something or when I go, you know, oh, do I have that, that, you know, that photo? Well, yes, I do because it's already done its thing in the background. Yeah, we should. Uh, I I have really nothing more to add. So, <laughs> well, you're gonna switch to the Mac, right? I've, I've talked you into it. I do understand your point. 
um, and I do see your perspective. Uh, and for the same, like all the the reasons that you mentioned, I could I can make the same argument for the iPad. So I think, you know, like you said at the very beginning of this section, uh, this is not a holy war, and I think that's the beautiful thing about this. You can use the Mac, you, I can use my iPad, and we can both be equally productive, but I think in different ways. And um, yeah, to to be able to say this, you know, with the uh, we have reached the point in the Apple ecosystem where different people can be productive in different ways using macOS and iOS. It sort of speaks to iOS evolution over the past seven years and also the stability of macOS, despite, you know, the problems that both platforms had, uh, especially since, you know, the the, the restructuring of iOS 7 and the new, uh, you know, some of the missteps on on, on the Mac. I think we are at at the point where the Mac could use some of the... uh, simplicity of iOS maybe, some of the removal of complexities all around the system, where iOS could use some of the the Mac's general approach to multiple operations at the same time, uh, whether it's about multiple apps or multiple files. In general, iOS is a one-way OS in many ways. Uh, the, the way that it forces you to uh, to to operate with one document at a time. And even Split View, yes, you can use two apps at the same time, but man, the Split View UI is terribly broken. <laughs> and so iOS, yeah. it Apple showed some signs of we want to make this, you know, a two-way communication with the user and with apps. It's still a one-way street uh, for the most part. And that's what I want to see from, from iOS 11 this year. More flexibility like the Mac when it comes to doing multiple things at once on the computer because it turns out people can do multiple things at once and computers can. So why cannot the OS expose those for me? So the, the yeah. arguments that you make, I think they're totally fair uh, from your perspective. And the same arguments and some different ones also makes sense for iOS and the iPad. And my general approach here is we should all be happy with what we have and hope for something better. It just seems so stupid to settle this by saying, well, the Mac is better or the iPad is better. Yes, we do make fun of each other, uh, but that's always in good faith. I don't really believe there is a better solution that, you know, you cannot objectively declare the best computer in Apple's lineup. Because if you really want to go down that route, by all measures, that would be the iPhone. <laughs> and we talked about this before. <laughs> so what, what makes this a great discussion for me is um, we each have a preferred option. There is no single winner. And what we can hope is for a bunch of improvements across the entire family, uh, iPhone, iPad, and Mac. But still, we won't have a single definition of, well, this is by, you know, we, we have a winner. This is the best computer that Apple makes. And that's never going to be true for, for, for anyone. So, right. yeah, this is great. This is great. Great, great discussion. Yeah. So if you want to hear us fight, uh, we're going to do that after this sponsor <laughs> break. We have something fun for the, the third act of the show. But this episode of Connected is also brought to you by Eero. These days, everything in our homes requires an internet connection. Speakers, thermostats, light bulbs, front door locks, security cameras, ladies in a tube, and everything in between. And we increasingly look to streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, Spotify as our home entertainment. Wi-Fi is the foundation for all of this. We're totally dependent on it, 
and Wi-Fi is totally broken. Connections can be inconsistent, slow, and unresponsive. To get the best possible connection today, you need a distributed system that can provide you with a connection all over the home. Now, previously, this has been super expensive to do, super complicated, but not anymore. With Eero, you can install enterprise-grade Wi-Fi in your home in just a few minutes. Now, this is not a simple extender. Each Eero has two radios inside, keeping your connection fast and everything in sync on one network name. Simply download the Eero app on your iOS or Android device, and it will walk you through each step of the setup process. It's quick, easy, and painless. The Eero app lets you manage your network from the palm of your hand. You know how many devices are connected at any given time, as well as the internet speed you're getting from your service provider. Now, the connection reliability of Eero is really unmatched. Our house is laid out like a big L shape. It's kind of terrible for Wi-Fi. And so we have three. We have one in the center and one on each end. And it means that I can take an iPad and walk from one end of the house to the other or across the yard and stay connected, even though I know I'm probably moving between access points. Before Eero, that would have been a real pain. You would drop and then pick up the other one, have to change network names. And Eero makes that super reliable and super fast. The average home in the U.S. is easily covered by between two and three Eros. So a three pack is a good starting point. But if you live in a larger space and need more, you can have up to 10 in total. And because of Eero's 30-day money-back guarantee, you can always return one of your Eero's if you end up not needing it. Eero is the original whole home Wi-Fi system, and to celebrate its first birthday, the price has been permanently lowered. You can now get an Eero 3-pack for $3.99, which is $100 off, or a 2-pack for $2.99, which is $50 off. And you can get this Eero at the lower price right now on Eero.com, Best Buy, or Amazon. Thank you so much to Eero for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. So we thought it would be fun to quiz each other about our preferred platform. So we have a couple of ground rules here. Okay. We each have five questions. Uh, Federico and I have prepared them in advance. Yes. And uh, they cover hardware and software. We, of course, do not know the questions. The questions were submitted in advance for approval by Mike and Jason. So they... They both have uh, seen the questions. They mm-hmm. deemed them fair and hardness. But J- Mike did say to me that the questions come from different places. So yeah. uh, I'm very curious to see how we go. And so I thought we... W- I have an idea, but we'll see. The, the I guess how we go about this, we, I think we alternate. So I think you ask me a question, I ask you a question, and we I'll, I'll keep score. I have, I have a, a notebook here. We'll keep score. Okay. And... Uh, and We'll go from there. So okay. why don't you shoot first? Okay. My first question is, according to Apple's Craig Federighi and his story at WWDC, how did Apple's crack product marketing team land on the OS X Yosemite name? Oh, uh, they, went on a, they went on a trip, right? And they visited uh, Weed. Is, was that the yeah. joke? Yeah. Weed, yeah. Weed, California? Yes. This is the, oh man. <laughs> You're it's good, right? Yeah. Yeah, And uh, so they wandered around California baked and then finally ended up at Yosemite. Yes, that is the yes. exact story. They went on a trip with the VW minibus and they reached <laughs> OS Ten Weed before heading down to discover Yosemite. Yes. That's pretty good. Uh, I, I, yeah, he's great on stage. Yeah. Okay. All right. My first question for you, Federico. Oh, God. Uh, between the iPhone and the iPad, which device got LTE first, 
and which model of each line was the first? So kind of a two-part question. Between the so between the iPhone and the iPad, yes. Which got LTE first? Mm-hmm. All right. So LTE were definitely talking after the iPhone four, and mm-hmm. I think after the iPhone four S. So we're, we're we are in. Uh, I want to say the iPad four got LTE first. Uh, iPad three. I'll give you a half point for that. I think really? you can redeem it. I think you can get a full point if you if you if you know which iPhone was first. Uh it was the iPhone five S. So close. Oh man, I knew I was getting that wrong. It is. See, now I'm doubting, right? So now I'm opening Mac Tracker double check. But it was the iPhone five. It was the iPhone five. It was the what iPhone about the 5, iPad. Uh and the iPad the iPad three. The iPad 3 and the iPhone 5, so I was a year late, basically. Yeah. Okay, well, no point for me then. Yeah, sorry, buddy. Okay. I'm still double-checking. I'm still stalling. I'm okay. double-checking. I, I know you're going to win this because you, you have such a broad knowledge of all this stuff, but okay, one, it was one the zero. IPad, it was the iPad 3, so all right, so one zero. One zero for you, okay. My yeah. second question is, name at least two new OS, well, new at the time, OS X Mavericks features. New to OS X Mavericks. Yes, at least two. Did Mavericks bring the Maps app to the Mac? Uh, I think it brought... uh, I want to say yes. I'm just checking again my documentation here. I have a web page from Apple. Uh, So I'm still thinking... Uh, we should say neither of us are cheating, obviously. We're just taking our word that we are honest people. I'm going to also say that it brought... Uh, did it, is it the one that brought uh, handoff and continuity to the Mac? I don't think so. Oh, no. no. I picked Mavericks because it's a very tricky one. Because Forgettable. No, no one remembers <laughs> Mavericks. <laughs> Well, if I get maps right, then I think I think it's a half point. Yeah, maps is maps is right. Okay, Ma- maps is definitely advertised on the on the Apple webpage for maps. Okay, now I'm looking now I'm looking on the Wikipedia page. Uh timer coalescing. Yeah. Notification center. Yeah. Man, F- uh, Finder tabs tags. Ah. iCloud so. Kitchen. Yeah. All right. So it's so. A one and a half for you. Okay. All right. Z- still that is zero. a forgettable. That is a forgettable release. Is yeah, this the first, yeah. It was the last one with the old design. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Almost no one really remembers Mavericks. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Mavericks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you can. You can go. So right. one. This, the, one and a half for you. This one. This one. I'm very curious if you get right. Mm. If you do, I will award you two points for this because this is this is the hardest one. <laughs> oh, that man, I have. I'm, never, I'm never gonna get it right. <laughs> How much did Apple charge iPod Touch users for software updates before they became free? Okay, so I do remember this, and ah. I used to pay for this, and um, I'm torn between nine ninety nine from iTunes and nineteen ninety nine. I'm probably gonna say it was ten dollars nine ninety nine. Uh, that is correct. Yep, I used to pay for this in iTunes. So <laughs> iPhone OS two was nine ninety five, and iOS three was four ninety five. Okay, yeah, so, I do remember the first one because I think with the with the second one I was already on the iPhone. 
Yeah. That's why. That was that was what I thought my hardest ones. And I said I'd give you two points. So it's two to one and a half. <laughs> I hope I don't regret my generosity. Oh, man. Okay. Um, so this one you're going to know for sure. Uh, what was the follow-up to Apple's project Copeland supposed to be named? The follow-up to Copeland? Yeah. Well, Rhapsody was what came next. Uh, I don't really know if it's a follow-up technically. But in, in, in Apple's plans, there was supposed to be Copeland followed by this other release. It's hard to think and be on a podcast at the same time, so I'm just making noise. Oh man, I I thought you I thought you were. Going I should to I I should get this clear this question so easily. So 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 Rhapsody was the next like the next OS release that so, also fell apart. Yes. So think about this: there's Gil Emilio, I think, is the is the CEO. Yeah, he hops on stage at WWDC and he starts talking about Copeland and. People start complaining already at the keynote. So he goes on stage after, during the same event, and he starts making a bunch of promises for features that will be in Copeland and also will be in a follow-up release to Copeland. What's the name of that release? And eventually, you know, Apple started talking about this release, but then it came out when the, when the entire project fell apart that the follow-up release, uh, no one was really working on it. It was all just a name up in the air. Hmm. I know Gershwin was in there. They had a bunch yes, of music in it. Gershwin? Gershwin, yep. Yes. There you go. Boom. So I had to get, yeah. I had to, get to it. They had, they, they had a bunch of weird code names in there. <laughs> none, none of it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, none of them, really. And Gershwin, I, I did a bunch of reading. Gershwin basically didn't exist. No one, no engineer had actually started working on Gershwin. So. It's like beyond vaporware. Yes, it's just like really non-wear. It's not non-wear. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so we're up to uh, question number three for me. So you're two and a half, and I'm at two. Yes. Okay. All right. How? Uh, what? What version of iOS unified the iPad and the iPhone? Uh, so the iPad launched with a weird fork of iOS 3. I was probably iOS 3.2. So I think they were unified by iOS... iOS 4.1. 4.1? Oh, crap, man. And I'm, I'm not going to give you the point because 4.0 came on the phone and the iPad the iPad was stuck on 3.2 oh. or whatever it was. And it was 4.1. Really? Yeah. It was weird. Man. Super weird. 4.0 never shipped to the iPad. 4.0, yeah. All right, all right. I don't think I don't think you get that one. I'm sorry. Oh. Next question. Okay. When when did Scott Forstall become in charge of macOS 10 releases? Are you looking for a year or a release yes. or an event? Release or an event. There's both. Uh, there's both a year and there's yeah. also a specific event is that it, happened. Is it after Bertrand left? No, it's got to it's got to be or Avi after Avi left. Yes, it's ah, after Avi left yes. in two thousand and six. Okay, so you got that right, man. You're gonna you're just gonna get it at this game. Avi was a boss, man. Super yeah, boss. I know. Uh, yeah, there's a well, there's going to be a link, uh, I guess, to uh, uh, his full name is Avadis Tvanion. Yeah, uh, he used to be the chief software technology position that is no longer in Apple's mm -hmm. leadership. Yeah. He was a next guy. Came yeah. over from next. Yeah. All right. So we're th we're three and a half to two. 
Okay, I'm 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 not gonna win this game mathematically. Are you in the Are you in the zone? <laughs> you can ask me, but I'm not gonna win this game anyway. If this is your last question, is this your no, last I question? Two more. Okay, two, two more. more. Okay. Uh, and it's funny. I have a question very similar to your Mavericks question. Mm. Name two things released in iOS eight. Oh well, uh, extensions. Mm. Okay. And uh, to the new uh, the today widgets for apps. Okay. Custom keyboards, document picker. I can <laughs> I can go on. <laughs> Point. Uh, health, continuity, lots of stuff. I always they had a ton of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Ton of stuff. This is my last question. Okay. Okay. So to set the stage for drama. Yes. Three and a half to three. So I need to get this wrong and you need to get the next one right. Yes. And you win. Okay. How long did iTunes ping officially last? <laughs> one year, two years, or 10 months? Uh, I'm going to go with 10 months because it's the saddest. And you got it wrong. It's two years. Oh, it was oh, man. discontinued. So let me give you the precise time here. But iTunes Ping launched in 2010, in September 2010. I'm just trying to open Wikipedia and it's surprisingly hard on my MacBook. So <laughs> You don't have any keys. Here we go. iTunes Ping launched in sept- September 1st, 2010. Discontinued officially on September 30. 2012. That's a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's still three and a half to three. Now is my yeah. chance to win this game. <laughs> now is your chance to win. Oh, this is so dra- so dramatic. Okay. We're gonna go. We're gonna go all the way back. Oh man. How much did the original iPad weigh? The original. Doody do. The original doody, iPad. Do. Yes. Uh, well, can I give you grams? Uh, yes, I can convert them because I have a Mac that can do that sort of thing. I'm gonna say the original iPad was 900 grams. 680. Weighed 1.5 pounds. Really? It's, really? Okay. You thought it was heavier? Yeah. You thought it was heavier? I thought it was heavier. Just for our American listeners, 900 grams is 1.9 pounds. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Too heavy. All well, right. You win this game. By half a point. By half That's a point. That's pretty close. Yeah. I think, I think we're, both, we're both masters of our, of our uh, platform domains, I think is the, the lesson here. Good game, Federico. Uh, you too. Definitely have a weak point in hardware details, as you, yeah. as you can see. <laughs> That's all right. That's what Mike meant by different places. Yeah. Yeah, that I'm a hard, uh, I love hardware. Yeah, as as documented on my YouTube channel. So, if you want to find links for this week, including links that we're both going to put in to the document, hopefully about our quiz, uh, you can read all of those at relay.fm/slash/connected/slash/137. Uh, you can get in touch with us there. There's an email link. You can find us on Twitter, of course. Uh, Mike is at i m y k e if he ever comes back to the show. Federico is at V-I-T-I-C-C-I and writes MacStories.net. And you can find me on Twitter as ISMH, and I also write 512pixels.net. Until next week, Federico, say goodbye. Arrivederci. Adios.